We're gonna start in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses three through nine. So some of you older, my age and older probably will know of a guy named J. Vernon McGee. He was a pastor for many, many years. He's dead now, but he had a radio ministry and don't let that deter you. He was a good, he was a true man of God, preached the word, had a really distinctive speaking voice, very strong Southern accent. I'm not gonna do the impression of him this morning. I can, but I'm not going to uh, because I don't wanna embarrass my family. But uh, he, you can still find him. You can still hear his recordings on radio stations sometimes. One of the things McGee would do is he would answer letters from his listeners on the air. So at one point, a woman wrote him and said, my pastor just told us that Jesus wasn't really raised from the dead because it's impossible for a dead man to come back to life. So what must have happened, according to my pastor, is that Jesus just fainted on the cross and everyone assumed he was dead and they put him in that cave. And then when later on, he revived and he came out of the tomb and that's why his disciples assumed he'd come back from the dead. She said, what should I do? Here was McGee's answer. He says, Take your pastor out and flog the skin off of his back and shoulders, (laughs) drive nails through his hands and feet, then suspend him in the air for six hours, drive a spear through his side, then throw him in a cave for three days and see what happens. I think that's a good answer, but it reminds us why we're here today. Jesus really did die for our sins. He really did rise again. And I know around the world this morning, there are pastors who are preaching sermons in which they are trying to convince people that it really happened. And I'm not gonna do that this morning. I've preached that sermon in the past. I could preach it again. I can tell you that I, I believe that Jesus rose again. More, I believe that more than I believe any other historical fact ever. I, I've staked my eternal soul on it. So if you're someone who has doubts, if you're a Christian who has doubts about the resurrection and wanna know how you can be sure, or if you're an out and out skeptic and you think how can anybody with more than two brain cells to rub together believe in such a ridiculous thing, please, Email me, my, my information is on the website. I'd love to talk to you about it in a very non-judgmental, non-condescending way and just share with you the reasons why I know that Jesus is risen. Today, what I wanna talk about instead is why it matters. I grew up in church. I got saved when I was nine. Those baptisms you saw back up there, that was me at nine years old, only the water wasn't warm, okay? We didn't have fancy heaters back then. Uh, and, and, and so ever since then, I believe that Christ was risen, but it took a long time for me to understand why it mattered. So growing up, often, often my, you know, around this time of year, my mom, my Sunday school teachers, the pastor, they would all be saying, Jesus is risen, Jesus has come back from the dead. And my emotion was, well, good for him, I'm glad, but I don't know what that does for me. And we're in a, an interesting time in our country because let's face it, there's never been a group of people as prosperous and free as we are in the United States of America in 2022. You realize, don't you, that what we call middle class is fabulously wealthy to the rest of the world and would be fabulously wealthy to our great-grandparents if they were still around. And yet, in spite of all of our prosperity, in spite of all of our, all of our freedom, there's this sense of despair that just pervades our culture. I can quote lots of statistics. I'll just quote this one because I read this recently and it broke my heart. In 2009, one out of four teenagers said they have a persistent feeling of sadness or hopelessness. One out of four, that's 2009. They asked that same question this year. They asked this generation of teenagers, 
How many have a persistent feeling of sadness and hopelessness? And the number had risen to 44%. And I, you know, being around teenagers, having teenagers myself, I believe that, I see that. I see that despair, I see that longing for more. I see that in adults too, not just non-churched adults. I see that in Christian adults, this sense that there's gotta be more to life. I'm, I'm missing something, right? There's gotta be more than what I'm experiencing. And a sense that maybe things will never get better than they are now, and if so, I don't know if I can go on. So what does the resurrection have to say to people who are struggling? This is actually the beginning of a new series for us. We're gonna be studying the book of 1 Peter from now until the end of May, Lord willing. And 1 Peter is an interesting book because it's written to people who, unlike us, they weren't prosperous and they weren't free. Many of them were slaves. Almost all of them were poor. And they were experiencing for the first time real persecution for their faith. And even those who weren't physically persecuting them thought they were ridiculous for what they believed. And so Peter writes to say, in spite of all of that, no matter what your circumstances are, you can live a life that constantly makes progress. Not that, not that you go from victory to victory. It's not that everything happens is good. It's that no matter what happens to you, you're headed somewhere good. You are making progress toward a goal. Your life matters in such a way that your life becomes so compelling that even the people who start out making fun of you eventually end up asking you, what do you have? Because I need whatever it is, what you've got, I need to know how to get it. So how do we get there? First Peter chapter one, verse three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make in a world where we don't know how to go on? Paul, Peter says it, we have a living hope. See, a lot of folks think of Christianity as a religion, and in many senses it is. Because in Christianity, we have commands from God that we still try to follow to this day. We still believe those are binding on us. We have certain doctrines we believe, and those are, are, are non-negotiable. There are certain doctrines in the scriptures that you and I need to be willing to lay down our lives rather than say no to, than, than deny. And, and then there are rituals that we perform because we believe God wants us to come to church, to gather, to worship together, to be baptized in his name, to take the Lord's Supper periodically. And so when you have rules and you've got doctrine and you've, and you've got rituals, you've got a religion. But if that's all you have, if all you know of Christianity is the rules and the doctrines and the rituals, no wonder you're so sad. No wonder you don't have the abundant life that Christ promised because essentially you're worshiping a dead savior. You're worshiping a savior who is, who is in heaven somewhere and, and lived a great life and we can admire him, but he has nothing to do with our lives right now. No, instead, Peter says we serve a living savior, a risen savior. We have a living hope. That means Jesus is involved in our lives right now. That means we get to have a relationship with him and it makes all the difference in the world. 
First of all, it means you have a secure future. As, as Peter writes, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through resurrection, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. I know we've probably all seen stories, mostly fictional, of the rich uncle who dies and suddenly this average person is, finds himself totally rich. His uncle left him his magnificent Rolls Royce or his Bentley or his Ferrari or his Lamborghini or, or he left him this, his beautiful mansion in River Oaks or, or somewhere else or maybe just gave him a lump sum of money in a, in a trust fund that you get to access when you get to the right age. And isn't that great? And we all think, man, I wish I had one of those kinds of uncles. But we have something better. Because let's face it, the sports car wears out no matter how hard you try to take, it, take care of it and keep it up. And the, the mansion, it falls apart too. And the money dries up and blows away. One little jiggle in the stock market or one bad investment or, or one wild weekend and it's all gone. Or then you manage to hoard it all for yourself and leave it to your kids and they waste it, right? Or he leaves you his priceless box of baseball cards worth thousands of dollars and you think, okay, this will set me up for life. And you go to your mom's house and you say, hey, where's that box of baseball cards? And she says, oh, I sold them with your toys at the garage sale, right? That's the world's kind of inheritance, but the inheritance Christ has laid up for you, once it's yours, cannot be lost, cannot be stolen, cannot be squandered, no matter what you do. And let's be clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about eternal life in heaven. And I need to say this. And those of you who go to church here, you've heard me say this before. And if you stick around a while, you'll hear me say it again. This is one of my favorite subjects and I'm not sorry for saying it over and over again. But heaven as we see it in popular culture is nothing like heaven that's described in the scriptures. Even the heaven you hear about when you go to a Christian funeral and you hear people talking to one another and they're talking about, well, you know, she's my angel now and you know, I'm sure she's up there playing a harp. No, she's not. She's not an angel any more than she's a basset hound, okay? It's not scriptural that we become angels once we die. And, and we don't lounge around on clouds and we don't have halos and we don't wear robes and we don't strum harps. No offense to you harp players out there, it's a beautiful instrument, but I don't wanna hear it for all of eternity. <laughs> the scriptures are clear that heaven is a redeemed planet earth, that we walk on real ground, that we climb mountains and we, we swim oceans and we, we have renewed, redeemed perfect bodies. I don't mean perfect in the, in the cover of a magazine sense. We're not gonna be worried about all that vain stuff. I mean bodies that can't wear out, bodies that can't get sick, bodies that won't die, and bodies that won't sin. And so we have these reunions with people we've lost, loved ones that we said goodbye to and it's been killing us and now they're there and they'll never die again and now there's no sin between us so there's no weirdness and there's no, there's no petty disagreements and there's no chance we're gonna get mad and, and have to separate and, and we, we feast and we sing and we work. Yes, there is work in heaven, but it's meaningful work that you are meant for. And, and we play and we rejoice and Jesus constantly compared it to a wedding feast not to an eternal church service. Can anybody say amen? amen? Yes, and even better than all of that is we're in his presence all the time, forever. And you might say, okay, that's a very pious thing to say, but it doesn't really move the needle for me. You need to understand the reason why food tastes good, 
The reason why it feels so good when someone who loves you gives you a hug. The reason why it's so much fun to laugh with your friends. The reason why you can enjoy a really good story. The reason why whatever it is you love doing, you, you love doing it so much, it gives you that sense of enjoyment and fulfillment. That all came, came from God. He invented that stuff. And he didn't have to. None of that is necessary for our, for our flourishing and for our, for our survival as a species. He created all that stuff because he loves us. And so when you get to heaven, you get to skip past the middleman straight to the source of all those good things. And I think when we've been in heaven a couple of days, we're gonna look around and go, you know, I was real worried before I got here whether there was gonna be golf or hunting or fishing or whether I was gonna be able to eat steak and whether I was gonna be able to do this or do that, uh, whether my pets were gonna be here or whether so-and-so, you know. Now I get here and I realize he's the best part and all that other stuff is just details. This is what I've been looking for my whole life and that's yours, that's what's waiting for you, that's your inheritance. And, and you hear that word inheritance, you don't, you don't earn an inheritance, it's given to you and that's the truth with us too. That song we sang at the beginning of the service, it was finished on the cross. The moment Jesus said, it is finished, your salvation was secured. But the fact that he rose again means that death can't beat you. That your death is only a promotion if you're in Christ. And yes, you grieve when you lose loved ones, but you grieve as those who have hope. And, and, and speaking of that word hope, I want you to ask yourself the question, what am I putting my hope in right now? Because if we're honest, a lot of us have this little dream in our minds of, okay, once I get to this thing, once this event occurs, or once, once I achieve this, then I'll finally be happy. And it's, you know, once I can get married, or once I can have a career for myself, or once I can meet this certain uh, a goal in my career, or once I have kids, or, or once my kids grow up and get out of the house so I can have the house to myself again, or once I retire, or whatever the case may be. And I just wanna warn you, while most of those things are very, very good, and you should enjoy them if they happen, None of those things can bear the weight of your hope. If you put all your hope in any of those things, even very, very good things, you will crush them and it will destroy you. Tim Keller tells about a woman in, one of his church, in, the, in the church he pastored uh, who just prayed and prayed that God would give her children. She wanted more than anything else to be a mom and she and her husband for many years could not conceive and they prayed and prayed that God would give her children and then suddenly, unexpectedly, the miracle happened and she conceived and gave birth and then boom, had another one in, in rapid succession. So she had these two beautiful kids that she was so devoted to, she was absolutely determined that these would be the most loved, the happiest, the most successful and well-balanced kids who've ever lived. She devoted herself tirelessly to those kids and, and then they got to that point in life that we all reach where they started to think for themselves and make their own decisions and started making their own plans for life and whereas we as parents, that's always a little difficult for us, we also celebrate it. She couldn't celebrate it because it meant she was losing the thing she had put all her hope in. So anytime her kids did anything she didn't disagree, that she disagreed with, or anytime they talked about their plans for the future, and eventually when they did grow up and move away, she was totally lost. She had crushed her children by placing all of her hopes on them, and they had disappointed her in a way that could never be healed. And whatever you have your hope in, if it's not Jesus, if it's not the inheritance he's laid up for you, it will do the same thing to you. I'm saying this because I love you, because Christ loves you. He is your hope. He is your secure future, the only one you have, the only one you cannot lose, and the only one that won't disappoint you. 
But it's not only a secure future, it's meaning for today. In verse five, he calls us those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? A salvation ready to be revealed. Because if you grew up in a church like this one, either Baptist or another evangelical church, you were told growing up that the key was when you get to the right point, when you understand the gospel, when you know who Jesus was, when you're aware of your sin, you pray a prayer, he comes into your heart and you are saved. I bet I could, I could pass a microphone around this room. I'm not going to, don't worry. But I could and people could just say, I was saved when I was this, year, this many years old. I was saved in this year. I was saved this month, this date. They could pinpoint that date. Not everybody in this room, but many. And yet, he talks about a salvation that is ready to be revealed. It hasn't been revealed yet. So what does he mean? See, here's what we Baptists didn't do a good job of telling our people when we were discipling them which is very biblical. And that is, you're saved the day you come to know Christ, but it's just the beginning of your salvation. It's not the end. Yes, you're saved. Yes, heaven is your home, but that's not it. That's not the end. You are just starting down a road of salvation where Jesus is working in your life. Like a master artist, picture Michelangelo with a big chunk of marble, uh, four or five times his own size, and he's chipping away with this little chisel and hammer, and little by little, that that big shapeless hunk of marble is being formed into something beautiful. And that's Jesus. And you picture someday there's gonna be a, a revelation as he, as he whips off the, the, the curtain that's been covering you and the whole creation looks and, and is amazed and is in awe of what Christ has done. As it says in, in Ephesians 2.10, my favorite verse in the whole Bible, we are God's workmanship. That word workmanship means work of art. I'm not making that up. That is literally what the Greek word means. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do. So you're better than a work of art. You're better than Michelangelo's David because you're not just a chunk of marble that sits there looking beautiful. No, God creates you and recreates you and works in you to shape you for the events that he created you to do. The the good works that he planned for you ahead of time. The people that he knew before you were ever born, he wanted you to touch and reach and and minister to and and in some ways save. He is shaping you, forming you for eternity altering work. That's his masterpiece and that's you. And the bad news is you can opt out if you want to. And I, I believe there are many Christians who do. Are they really saved? I believe they are. God knows. But I think they miss out on abundant life Because again, they're following a religion, not a living savior. And they don't let him make those changes in them. They go to church, they follow the rules, but they never become a part of the body of Christ. They don't sit down with the word of God and really try to to measure their lives according to God's holy word. They They don't pray and repent of their sins and ask God, change me, change my heart, make me a new person every single day. Lord, shape me into your image. They don't get involved in transforming relationships with others. They don't don't invest in those who are hurting. And so because of that, Jesus is the ultimate gentleman. He's not gonna take us where we don't wanna go. He's not gonna drag us unwillingly into his glory. No, he will let us remain a shapeless hunk of marble if we want to. He'll let us remain babies in Christ, unable to do anything for ourselves if we want But if instead we'll follow along with him, what an adventure 
It gives great meaning to your life. Every day, something changes. Every day, you grow a little bit more like him, even on the worst days of your life. See, Paul, Peter goes on to say, we rejoice in this even though for a little while you've been grieved by various trials. He says, we're like, we're like gold that's been thrown into the fire. We're being refined. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say what your, your popular preachers on TV and on the radio want to say, what they often say, what gets them the big donations, right? He doesn't say, hey, life is hard now, but that's okay. If you have enough faith, it's all gonna be okay. If you have enough faith, all those hard times are gonna go away and you're gonna stand triumphant and you'll never suffer again. By the way, call 888, blah, 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 and donate to my ministry and I, I need a new car. So <laughs> Peter doesn't say that. Instead, he says, these things that are happening are gonna result in praise and glory in the day of Christ Jesus. What does he mean? Well, I, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna call, I'm gonna ask you to do something a little difficult. I want you to think right now of the worst thing in your life, the, the thing in your life that you wish you could change, the most painful thing going on in your life right now. Could be a health issue, could be a relationship that's, that's messed up, could be a friend or, or someone you're worried about, it could be uh, finances, who knows. But whatever it is, if you, could, if you could wave a magic wand and make this problem go away, think about it right now. You got it? I'm not gonna make you shout it out, but do you have it? All right, so Romans 8, Romans 8, 28 says, all things... That means all things. That means including the thing you just thought of. All things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. See, God is not just like a master artist. He's also like a shipbuilder. Some of you have taken cruises. That's something I still have on my bucket list to do. Uh, but I see these cruise ships as they're sailing out of Galveston or out of New Orleans. And it just amazes me that this massive floating city, right, I mean, thousands of people on it, most of whom need to lose weight, and they're eating 24-7 while they're on it. And they're on this massive, massive thing that's made of metal, made of all these different parts that don't float, and yet somehow that whole thing can go from here to Cozumel or the Bahamas or wherever you wanna go, and, and I don't know how that works. And by the way, if you're an engineer and you know how it works, good for you. I really don't want you to try to explain it to me. I am comfortable in my ignorance. I'm happy for you to have that knowledge. I'm sincerely glad and, and, I, and I hope you enjoy that. But yeah, that's not the point. The point is that God is able to take whatever the world throws at us, even things that he did not plan, even things that, are, that break his heart because he sees them happening to us and he's able to say, okay, I'm gonna work that into my plan somehow. I'm gonna make it glorious. So for instance, just... Hypothetical examples, a, a woman whose, whose husband leaves her and the kids just right in the middle of life and she's left with nothing and that's awful and God did not intend that. God does not ordain that kind of sin and yet someday she looks back and says, yes, God did not ordain it but he used it and I was able to have an, an incredible ministry to young women who are raising kids on their own or, and young women who are heartbroken and, and to help them and to show them the hope that I found. Or a guy who, who is diagnosed with cancer and, and, and for months he's got such, such harsh uh, treatment to try to kill this severe cancer that he has laid low. I mean, he's just, he has no energy, he has no strength, all his hair falls out and he gets to the end and he rings that bell and he says, okay, I would never wanna do this again. But if I hadn't had that cancer, I wouldn't have slowed down enough to realize I am working 
seven days a week and I never see my kids and I'm constantly thinking about the next job on my to-do list and so I never take time to be with the Lord and I'm missing out on so much in life. Thank you, Lord, for using this to teach me to slow down. Now, let me tell you a true story. Those were hypothetical but I know of, uh, of a young woman. She was the, the daughter of one of my church members at, at, at a previous church. And she found out through ultrasound that the baby she was about to give birth to had uh, Down syndrome. And she was heartbroken, just devastated. I, I remember seeing her just weeping because you, you want your kids to be quote unquote perfect. And then I didn't see her again for several years. And the next time I saw her, her that baby was a little girl. And she said, you know what? I love that girl. I love her in way, I, I love, I, I don't love her more than my other kids, but she is the sweetest, kindest, happiest, uh, most loving person in the whole wide world. And if they could invent some technology that would make Down syndrome kids into normal kids, I wouldn't want my daughter to take it because I love her just the way she is and I would not want her to lose that part of herself. And I thought, yeah, that's what God does. He takes he takes what we think is, is the worst thing that could ever happen and he turns it into something beautiful if we will trust him. Someday, the good and the bad and the difficult in our lives will be a source of celebration. And then, not only that, Peter says we have that because we have a living hope, we have that, uh, that secure future, we have that daily meaning in life, our life is headed somewhere, but third, we have an inexhaustible source of joy. So he says something interesting. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. He's reminding them, I'm of the generation. I walked with Jesus. I was with him. In fact, Peter could go further. He doesn't, he doesn't trade on his celebrity here, but he could say, listen, I was Jesus' best friend. If anybody on earth was qualified to call themselves the best friend of Jesus Christ, it was Simon Peter of Capernaum. And yet, nobody can hurt you like the one who you love the most. Nobody can hurt you like those you're closest to. When I was a little kid, I remember having this nightmare in which I, I was stung by a, a black widow spider and I ran to my parents in the stream and I was like, you gotta get me to a hospital, those are poisonous and my parents both laughed and walked away. And I remember waking up just sobbing because man, when you're four or five years old and, and the two people in the world that you trust the most have just laughed at you when, when you think you're dying, that's pretty awful. And even though it was just a dream, it took me a long time to forgive my mom and dad for that, right? You ever had that? So Peter, the night Jesus is going through his worst moments, when he's being accused, falsely accused, when he's being beaten, when he's being mocked, condemned to die, his best friend is standing there within eyeshot denying him three times. Now, I don't know Jesus. You think that didn't wound our Savior? You think that Jesus didn't feel that pain? And it says that Peter knew what he'd done because he walked away after that third time when he heard the rooster crow and just broke down and wept bitterly because he knew this one who I love more than anybody else, I've just broken his heart. I'll never be able to make this up to him. And so on that morning, the, that Easter Sunday morning, that very first time when those women came running from the tomb and Mary Magdalene comes running up to the disciples and she says, listen, I know you're not gonna believe this, but he's alive. I saw him in the garden. He's alive. Jesus is back. And Peter and John, according to the Gospel of John, go running to the tomb. And John outruns Peter, which I'm sure must have made Peter angry because he always liked to be first. So Peter makes up for it by when they get to the tomb, John kind of lingers on the outside, but Peter just barges right on in, which is a very Peter thing to do. And then John comes in and he notices that nothing's left but grave clothes. 
But you would think if somebody came in and stole the body, for what reason we don't know, but you'd think if they would, they would have just ripped off the clothes and left them in a pile. No, these clothes have been folded up and laid aside and the face covering's been laid in its own place, folded neatly, as if a guy's gotten out of bed and then made the bed behind him. And it says John saw and believed. It doesn't say that Peter believed. Later that day, Jesus appeared to the disciples, the remaining disciples in, a, in an upper room and everybody was excited, but Peter must have thought to himself, Lord, can you come to me just individually? I need to talk to you. I need to apologize to you. I need to make things up to you somehow. I need to know if you've only come back to, to make me pay for my sins or if there's ever any way you can forgive me. And then comes that day when they see him by the shores of the Sea of Galilee and Peter's so excited, he's got to get to him. He dives out of the boat where they've been fishing and swims to shore and he stands there dripping in that same place where three years earlier Jesus had said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And he sees that laid out there is this charcoal fire that Jesus has built. He's been cooking them breakfast on that fire. And you know what that fire reminds him of. It was a charcoal fire around which Peter was standing in the courtyard of the high priest when he denied Jesus three times. You think Jesus doesn't know that? You think Jesus isn't stage managing this whole thing to, to remind Peter to say, I know what you did. And then Jesus asked him three times, Simon, do you love me? Son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? And each time Peter says, you know, Lord, you know everything. You know how much I love you. I love you more than anything on earth. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. So three times, one time for every time Peter denied him, Jesus says, I don't just forgive you. It's more than that. My plans for you have not changed. You will still be the one that feeds my sheep. You will still lead my people. I haven't changed a thing in the way that I feel about you. And so Peter can write all these years later to people who've never seen Jesus, he can say, I have seen him and I know that I have this glorious and inexpressible joy because I know that there's nothing I can ever do to make him love me any less than he does right now and there's nothing I can ever do to make him love me anymore. There's no pressure on me at all and there's no pressure on you either. He loves you and he will always love you no matter what the world does to you, no matter what the world says about you, no matter what you, what mistakes you make or how you feel about yourself, your life is headed in a direction every day you're following Jesus and you're gonna get there because there's nothing the world can do to stop you. As Peter says, that should make us, that should fill us with glorious and inexpressible joy because that's something the world can't take away. This little church in Bangladesh, Dampera Baptist Church many years ago, got their hands on a VHS copy of the Jesus film. Some of you know about this. Back in the 80s, they made a, a filmed version of one of the gospels. I believe it's the gospel of, of, of Matthew. Anyway, someone translated that movie into hundreds of different languages and then they made VHS tapes and sent them around the world as an evangelistic tool. And no telling how many people have been won to Christ through that film. So this little Baptist church in Bangladesh gets a copy and they, they send out their people to invite all their neighbors. And this is a, in a little village where there's not a movie theater. So people, they don't see movies. They don't watch movies. So this is a new experience. And everybody cat gathers and, and, and you can picture adults, children, all ages just crammed into this tiny little church building. And, and up there, there's this TV where they're watching the movie. And, and they've most of them have never heard the story, so they're amazed at the story of this man who actually lived and who, who touched lame people and they got up and walked and, and spoke to blind people and they could see and even raised the dead, who stood up for people who were poor and, and who, who shouted down the bullies and 
who was always kind and always generous and always right and always loving. And then all of a sudden the story takes this disturbing turn as the bad guys capture him and they kill him in this extraordinarily gruesome way. I mean, who even thinks of that? And you gotta imagine the people in that church building were shocked and they're sitting there, some of them crying, all of them just dead silent thinking, why did you invite me here to show me this terrible, depressing story? And in the midst of that quiet, you hear this, this tiny voice of this little boy who shouts as loud as he can, it's okay, everybody, it's all right, don't be afraid, I've seen this before, he gets up. And that's where our joy comes from, because he got up. And we get to say that to our neighbors, to our friends, to even to our fellow believers who are struggling, we get to say, we serve a risen savior, not, not a dead icon, not a hero of old, we serve someone who's there for us every single day because he got up. And so we have the joy that the world's looking for. And he can teach us to live in that joy every single day.